Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode number 48. Today, I welcome Canadian broadcaster and author Nora Young into the Girth Radio Studios. Nora was the founding host and producer of CBC's award-winning show, Definitely Not the Opera. Uh, she's also the founding host and co-producer of Spark. She's also authored a book called The Virtual Self. And she also hosts an indie podcast called The Sniffer, a podcast about trends in technology. I've been a huge fan of Nora Young for many years, and I'm really excited to deliver this conversation to you. Hope you enjoy. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. and then I turned up to King Street and walked along King Street and then I was a few minutes early so I did a loop around the block and then uh, came back the other way. And do you, are you tracking your uh, your steps? I do uh, kind of, I just use like an, uh, the Google Fit app on my phone. Okay. So I don't, I'm not like, I don't have the purpose-built device. I find it's good for tracking like overall trends but I don't like getting too hung up on the numbers. Like you're not going. Oh, I didn't hit ten thousand steps today. Yeah, and now it's interesting because now the um, the Fit app now actually is more. They've redesigned it so it kind of prompts you around that way. It'll say like these are your recent longest bike rides or longest walks or whatever, and you're oh. X amount more active than X percent of other Torontonians. So they're kind of. They're gaming it. They're gaming it in that kind of way that I, I find a little bit creepy. But um. So I've, I've got a pebble. Okay. Do you like your pebble? I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for another the third or fourth version to be shipped to me, so I'm excited about that. Mm. But um, I get a weekly email. And mm -hmm. so they say, here's how much sleep you've been receiving. Right. Which is not accurate because if I just take my watch off it it pretends i'm sleeping right away or it doesn't track sleep right 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 um or if i'm sitting on the couch watching netflix and then go to bed it thinks i've been sleeping that whole time right <laughs> very good sleeper oh, <laughs> maybe wow. that's just because i watch so much netflix i, I got know. 10 hours of sleep <laughs> <laughs> right. or um or I, I don't know if the steps are that accurate mm -hmm. but i'm i'm ahead of the average pebble mm -hmm. pebbler on steps but i'm way below sleep hmm. so i don't know if that's good or not but anyways awesome i think our volume is good okay yeah um thank you for joining me today thank you for asking me yeah um you sound in real life just like you do on the radio this is this is uncanny this <laughs> i is haven't really... been putting on a fake voice this on is... the radio <laughs> well you know people have you always hear or i always hear like people have these radio voices yeah you know and i remember when i was younger i could never tell who the dj was and I used to listen to 680 CFTR back when mm -hmm. they played music. Yeah. And I could never tell who the DJ was except if I knew what time it was. So I knew if Tom Rivers was on. Right. Or Mike Cooper. I could, you know, I, I would know based on that. But their voices would always sound, to me, hmm. always sound the same. Interesting. But um, awesome. So this is not a radio voice that you have. So I'm <laughs> no. I'm excited. Um, you you talk mostly about technology and culture. Yep. Um, and I just found out this past week that you have your own independent podcast. I do, yeah. Which I had no clue about, so I'm excited about that. Um, 
But you you studied or you I get yeah you studied poli sci. I did. I studied poli sci. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist, so oh, okay. I studied poli sci because I thought that'll give me something to write about, basically. Um, but I pretty quickly got interested in the technology dimension of um, of politics and and the economy and social change. And so, really, like I was still doing my undergrad when I got kind of the technology bug, and it was. So uh, so early on, because I'm just that old, that um, <laughs> at, at the time, it was really about looking at how digital technology was changing life on the factory floor. Like, so for okay. machinists, for instance, as their jobs were being de-skilled. Um, but, and so at the time I was studying, who knew, like, how big a part of our lives, like, I mean, there's always technological change, but just it seems like we're going through this moment of really intense yeah. technological change. Um, and then you you did your thesis in technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McGill. So so what did your professor think? Because you're, you're doing your master's in poli sci. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember my supervisor saying, it's too bad there isn't anyone here who knows anything about what you're doing, which is like, so that you, was a lesson, is do better research before you figure out where you're going to go to school. Or, or you aced it because like there was no one to check. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It looked pretty good to me. Yeah. And did you start, so when you graduated, did you uh, right away start at CBC, or what were you doing before? Uh, my first job out of um, grad school, actually, was um, working at the CNIB. Okay. So putting um, books onto, at that time, um, cassette tapes. So the volunteers would take books and narrate them. Um, and oh, wow. I would sort of coordinate, was one of the people who coordinated the, vo- the volunteers, which was, it was super interesting because a lot of it, I mean, some of it was novels, but most of it was stuff for students. And yeah. so thinking about how um, visual conventions that you might find in a print book would be translated into an audio format was pretty interesting. And I think that's part of why I got really interested in audio as a medium and the creative potential of audio yeah and, and this is well before like audiobooks there were still audiobooks at the yeah. time but it was before i guess before it became such a big thing for people to, like listen to them on their you know in the car or yeah. like on the subway when you're going to work kind of thing like so before like it had it has sort of a, a a use for people that couldn't read but now it's like wide scale yeah, I mean, now audiobooks are such a big uh, thing. Although I do have to say, and this is an interesting thing that I learned from my time there, is that from the perspective of a blind reader, their understanding, and I think they're right in this, is that what they're doing is reading. So they don't think of it as I'm listening to an audiobook. They think I'm reading That's the, part of the reading. audiobook. So it's an interesting distinction, I think. Interesting. And, and do they learn differently? Uh that I can't answer. Okay. <laughs> it's a long time ago, and I was working curious. in the library. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I saw it, um, if I heard it on your show, or if I heard it somewhere else. But the, the concept of seeing things in pictures—I don't know if you've, you've come across. Mm-hmm. Did you hear this? No. Where a lot of people, like I can see things in pictures. I can close my eyes and remember a memory, and I can visually see it. Apparently, not everybody can do that. Oh yeah, I heard that. So was that on your show? It, it wasn't. It okay. wasn't on my show, but it was on. Um, I don't know where I heard maybe that. Maybe White Coat Black Art. It was on the. It was on CBC. Ah, uh, oh, okay, okay, but that might be ideas? right. Yes, who knows? Anyway. Yeah, that was very. Yeah. That's fast. Have you have you looked into that at all? I'm, I'm very no, sure. I haven't. But it's a really interesting thing because you just think it's such a natural part of yeah um, what happens when you read something or what happens when you imagine something. But I guess not for everybody. That's crazy. 
Um, and so do you go to the CBC right after CNIB or? Um, I freelanced, um, but I was pretty like baby into the freelancing career. And mm -hmm. then I started um, stringing, like so doing freelance stories for this show called Brand X, which was on, okay. um, it was a CBC radio show that lasted for uh, 10 months before it got canceled. Okay. And it was a super weird, crazy show that I absolutely Love was it a marketing show or no? No, I mean it was really about um, popular culture and okay. um, and it had some really interesting things. Like it didn't, it didn't. There was no host of the show. It would just go from like contributor to contributor to contributor. Okay. And the idea that they had was that they really wanted to break outside of um, the sort of standard kind of list of people who typically would be on a CBC radio show. So they put a little tiny ad in the back pages of all the alternative weeklies. So like Georgia Strait and The Coast and Halifax and Now Magazine in Toronto. Yeah. And just ask people, hey, you know, send us some stuff or whatever. Um, and it was a really, really creative, great learning experience for me. And then they canceled it. And but canceled. <laughs> the good news was that they then decided, no, let's have this show called DNTO, which is going to be... Um, four hours long as it was at, in the early days. Wow. And uh, so the executive producer at the time, a guy named um, Bill Smith, said, okay, but I want to audition people from within the Brand X team. And so... To be the host. To be the host. So okay. I became the host and I had like really zero experience. <laughs> like very, very little experience. And it's not... I mean, you've been podcasting for a long time now, but it's not the most natural thing in the world to do um especially if you're at all like shy or yeah. introverted um and so i i often think that i'm really glad that that was before social media like i just that i was not in okay. the experience of being like constantly called out on twitter oh, no. over what a crappy interviewer i was or whatever you know um so i had the opportunity to kind of learn for a while without such a intense scrutiny which I think people now face much more if they go into a new role that's, that's public yeah I, I almost feel sad or sorry for Shad you know he sort of got entered a place where I think that it was a no-win situation yeah I, I I felt bad for him precisely around that the social media aspect of it that yeah. I felt that's really hard to be not only on like a flagship show but a flagship show that had so much intense focus on it yeah. for, um, for all the wrong reasons and then to come into that role and just be so public I mean that's yeah. that's really hard but fortunately I was not around <laughs> in those early days it was pre-Twitter yeah. pre-Facebook how does that name come about definitely not the opera it started because it was um, on the air opposite when the opera would be on Radio 2 and because it used to be okay. it used to run from <laughs> 1 to 4 so one to four or one to five? Four hours. One to five. <laughs> yes, five minus one is four, Nora. Um, and which was basically about the same window of time okay. that the opera was on. So, so it was definitely not the opera. Yeah. DNTO. <clears throat> um, you did that for a while. Eight years, yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. In it, is uh, it, well, is it a long time in radio or in, in CBC speak? <laughs> in CBC, people, radio shows do tend to last for a long time, although the hosts do tend to change over time. Um I think it's a pretty, it's a good run anyway. Um, it just got to be, after I learned more how to do audio, there was less and less of an opportunity to learn stuff from it. And it started okay. to get, 
just kind of repetitive and it wasn't what I wanted to be talking about. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So. And it was mostly a, a sort of a pop culture yeah. show with a focus I guess, is it now, is it still on or has it... It just ended. It just ended, um, right. And then after Sukin uh, started, Sukin Lee started in, I guess it would have been 2002, it sort of shifted more into personal storytelling, which really made sense. Like when the show went on the air in the 90s, you, you could credibly say, okay, we're going to do a weekly show that will like explain popular culture to you, right? You would never do that now. Not it's just now. too diverse and too, yeah. just too much going on, right? So, um, so yeah, that was the big shift after the first eight or nine years of the show. Interesting. I, I actually, I like, I was really enjoying listening to that show. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I could catch it on a, on a was it Saturday or Sunday? Saturday. Uh, yeah. You know, afternoon. Um, just interesting stories. Mm-hmm. That that she'd bring to the table, um, where, where there's, you know, you, you talked about learning on that show, all the technical stuff on yeah. how to put the show together. Probably mm-hmm. learned a lot about interviewing and yeah, and, and things totally. of that nature. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious in terms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, did you learn anything about storytelling at all, or, or you know, the way to capture an audience or anything of that nature? Um, I mean, I think we learned a lot about kind of capturing the ear with sound okay we didn't and then when i was on dnto we didn't do a lot of um the sort of personal storytelling which i do i think you know on spark we now do more of that where Mm -hmm. we'll explore an issue in technology but we'll try at least to get into it by having somebody tell a story of how they experience this in their own life yeah and it is a really effective way of getting people's um attention but um I guess we were all just sort of antisocial people or something that worked on the show, and we didn't really think in those yeah. in those terms. Um, but we definitely focused a lot on how to use sound to really um, just hold people, how to paint pictures with sound, how to use references from popular culture, like references from film and things like that, to make things resonant and make uh, have them kind of um, stand out with people's own personal experience. I'm guessing the... The desire to still explore technology and culture was still gnawing at you. Yeah, and I did do some of that in terms of like my own contributions to DNTO, mm-hmm. like through columns and things like that, and um, through constantly interviewing William Gibson whenever I could, and th- okay. things like that. Yeah. Um, but I just was feeling that I couldn't explore the issues that I wanted to, and I was bored, so I left. And I, I don't know if I would have – here's a fun career tip <laughs> advice, folks. Don't just quit your job. <laughs> See if you can get the organization to give you a different job, but don't just quit your job. But I quit my job and um, went freelance for a while, which was fine. But. Okay. And so do your, your indie podcast mm-hmm. – and I call it indie because it's, you know, it's not with CBC. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what's the name of it again? It's called The Sniffer. And the, yeah. uh, I do it with my friend Kathy Bond, who I actually met through – Brand X and DNTO. Okay. She, was, she used to do a column called The Video Diva, where she would do um, video reviews. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, so we've been friends ever since. And we started doing the podcast in 2005. So before so, you left DNTO? Uh, no, I left DNTO in 2002. So 2002, okay. So years okay. afterwards. And um, I guess we were just thinking that... Uh, at the time, remember at the time thinking, wouldn't it be great if you could make this really cool audio content that people could listen to on their 
uh, phones, or maybe we would like, you know, get Rogers or whoever to pay us to do this kind of content, which was, you know, was not necessarily a bad idea, but it was like sure. really not the right time at all to be thinking about doing something like that. Too early. Too early, and then and then right around that time was when, shortly after we launched, I guess. Um, iTunes started carrying podcasts and the first kind of wave of excitement about podcasting yeah. uh, started and we pretty quickly realized that we were not going to be um, you know indie media super indie media superstars but it's become a, a really good social thing for us but also it's a way to like because we talk about trends and technology and stuff like that and media and how, how it's all changing um, it's a really good way to kind of just put your thumbprint on ideas yeah. uh, without having to necessarily commit to actually writing a full thing about it. So and that's, it's, that's it's almost fun. 15 years. It's uh, 11 years. Yeah. 11 years. Yeah. That's it's amazing. Crazy. I know. It's crazy. And we've never, we've gone through periods where we've had like giant technical snafus <laughs> that have caused us to have to rebuild things or we've um, had times where you know life has got crazy for one or the other of us and we haven't done it for a couple of months but it's been pretty much constant for 11 years and so is this is this the the impetus to start spark um in an indirect way i think at the time like around 2005 2006 it was really when a lot of stuff was happening around i mean the the talk at the time was a lot about mainstream media and how it was failing to adapt to the evolving reality of uh, web 2.0 and independent mm -hmm. media and all that kind of stuff and um, failing to kind of acknowledge that the voice of bloggers for instance or podcasters or whatever and I really felt like because I had a foot in both of those worlds like I was continuing to freelance for CBC at the same time I felt that there was a way that we could make a show that was talking about some of these stuff, some of this, this stuff, but also kind of walk the talk so that it also could, you know, be a bridge where we would really respect the contributions of um, people who uh, were interested in being more engaged with the show and we could really kind of form some of those connections uh, and just sort of be a little workshop to see what that would look like to be a more contemporary broadcaster um, engaging with social media as it was just kind of yeah. emerging. Um, so at the time, and I, and I really did want to talk about um, technology and I really wanted to talk about it in a way that wasn't super hand-wringing, like not naive, but also not hand-wringing. Yeah. Um, and I think that just the time was right because I think CBC realized that they needed to um, start thinking effectively about some of these new tools and... Mm -hmm how we could work, or at least my bosses certainly were engaged in thinking that way. And um, so the timing was just, it just worked out right. And you know how it's like that kind of thing where you can kind of be banging your head against the wall yeah, about yeah. something for a while. And I had been submitting proposals for different types of programming that was sort of around the same kind of idea. But then sure. somehow you just have those moments when it's like, okay, I know exactly what this is and it's going to be called Spark. I didn't know what the, what the sound was going to be like. That okay. got worked out more... Uh, once we started making it, but I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. It was very, very suddenly, very clear. But I think we all have those moments when that happens, where you're trying and trying and trying, and then suddenly it's like you do a quarter pivot, and it's like, oh, I get it. That's what I'm supposed to be yeah, doing. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember um, 
your your website, the Spark website, was very different than the rest of CBC.ca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very – what was that all about? And Because now – I still might be wrong, but now it, it, CBC.ca looks more like what Spark used to look like only. The new uh, platform has really evolved and let us do a lot more things. We did um, – and it was really um, my, coll- my then colleague Dan Meisner's um, – sort of brainchild and was really what he spearheaded is he wanted us to be able to do things like have you know threaded conversations in the comments and various kinds of things that in the old um, CBC platform we weren't able to do and um, fortunately we had some support from um, Chris Boyce and uh, Steve Pratt in Vancouver who's now and he's now with Pacific content um, making branded podcasts and various things but at the time was a digital guy with CBC and they were like okay let's do this as a pilot project and so it really worked for us for um, for a while and um, it's really down to Dan that that was his that was his baby cool Um, you've had tons of stuff you guys have talked about everything from you know when Clay Shirky was the guy to get on everyone's show to talk about technology and Mm -hmm. culture uh, to you just finished a series uh, talking about um, digital currencies. Mm-hmm. Um, what have what's you've probably learned tons, yeah. you know, not just about how to put together a show, but probably you know just based on the people that you spoke to. Um, is, is there one thing that continues to stick with you that you've learned? Oh, that's a good question. Um. um I think one of the things about technology and technological change that I've learned is really the role that um, quote-unquote users have in shaping the direct, the way the technology is used. And it's come up again and again and again mm-hmm. from the evolution of Twitter to all different types of technology. And it's come up in an analysis from a lot of our guests is that we tend to think of technologies as kind of coming from on high and they're fixed and the user's gratefully accept the Jesus phone or whatever <laughs> but the reality is that in the early part of a technology it's a lot more fluid than that and it's a lot more and I think some in some ways we we're more aware of that now because we talk pretty openly about like a startup is pivoting to change its business model or change what they yeah. do because um, we just see behind the curtain of new technologies a little bit more but that to me I think because if there's one thing I would really like people who listen to Spark to, to feel and connect with is that there's politics to technology and okay. all those kind of design decisions that go into making a technology. Like they have politics and ethics embedded and power embedded into them. And that... Give me know, an example. Um, well, actually, it's on my mind lately because I'm talking to a woman um, on the show tomorrow who's a designer who has done some work around design for design for bad or design for stress, right? Which is we tend to assume when we make, when we design things that we're designing for somebody's like, yay, optimal life, but sometimes life is crappy, right? And she's looking at, so that's her basic thing, but she looks at, for example, what happens when you fail to consider design for diversity for example or you fail to consider Hmm. design for somebody who might be having a hard time or um you know when your your social media platform for example this is an example that she uses her name is sarah wachter 
Betcher. I'll have to learn how to pronounce her name before I interview her. Um, but one of the examples she gives is how, um, you know, sometimes the social media platform will do something like on Mother's Day. It's like, yay, moms, say happy Mother's Day to your mom, right? And it's not thinking about all of the people who maybe their mom's died or maybe they've, uh, you know, have a problematic relationship with their mother or whatever. Um, sure. So in, we tend not to think about the politics or the ethics that are embedded in those kinds of decisions. Who are you imagining that your end user is? That's what are you imagining that their life experience is? She could explain it much better than, than I could, but, uh, but so that's an example, I think. So this will be on the next here. episode of Spark? Uh, it'll be on two episodes from now. We're doing a design special. That'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. That's because you you know when 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 one thinks of design, you know to me I'm I'm not thinking about that, mm -hmm. right? I'm I'm just thinking about like you said the optimal life and, and what's the how can it help me where I am at rather than you know how can it understand where I am and mm -hmm. and, ma and maybe I don't want to you know go where everyone else is sort of going. Yeah, and or, maybe there are limitations on to how much design can. Um, account for that you know mm. I mean I was thinking about this recently like a, um, a friend of mine uh, who died tragically young several years ago when you know for the first year or so after it happened I would it would be that jarring experience you know that you have sometimes where you see somebody on Facebook or whatever that has has died and you know that and they're sort of being thrown up at you and at, at the time it was very jarring and upsetting those memories that Facebook feeds you every day yeah. from, from previous years yeah, yeah. Um, but now I find like I've, as time has passed and the nature of the grief has changed I find that I I find it comforting right like if I see that like a memory oh, yeah like oh he, yeah. he liked my show's Facebook page it's like that's that's nice because it reminds me that he cared about me yeah. enough to do that you know so and is there a way that design could ever capture how fluid that is for people as that's we change so and as the way we think about our dig digital legacy and the, the visual cues that are online about us yeah I don't know there might be a limit my uh, grandmother passed away a few months ago mm. um and and you know Facebook continues to serve up, you know these yes. memories. Yeah, yeah. You know of, of photos we we've taken with her over the years mm -hmm. that we would share with the whole family across the world on Facebook. Right. Um, and it's, you know, when I see that, I you know there, a smile comes on my face. Yeah. yeah. But it is interesting. <clears throat> there was a, a a friend of mine who had moved to Vancouver, and I had no clue he had cancer until after the fact after he had passed hmm. and there i think there was either a a, a facebook request i had sent him right. or a linkedin request i had sent him and it, sort of waiting for that yeah. and i felt so bad yeah you know yeah. um it, it's really interesting yeah. you know the, the things that we share and we don't share mm -hmm. you know on 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 technology um has anything surprised you that you've that you've learned or anything that surprises you today that you I can't believe that this is not around anymore or this is still around or anything like that? Well, you know, actually, I mean, that's the amazing thing is that we just interviewed on last week's show. We had uh, Nicholas Carr, the guy who wrote The Shallows and his Google Making Us Stupid and stuff. And he, he's just put out a new book, which is a collection of his um, best blog posts from over, I think, about 10 or 15 years. And 
it, the thing that was I was so struck by is how these like titans that he would mention that you just never hear about anymore, right? Like Second Life, right? When was the last time you thought about Second Life? That's so I was thinking about it yesterday. <laughs> when, when I was thinking about <laughs> not you know, most of us though. <laughs> when I was thinking about you know how did Nora Young start Spark before Twitter. You know, or, or around yeah. that same time, what yeah, was she yeah, thinking yeah. about? Yeah. Technology? So that's when Second Life came to my head. Second Life. But otherwise, no, I've, I've never thought about it. Yeah, or MySpace, like the, the, these things that were just... And I guess there must have been times in history when, you know, these great empires, economic empires, just rose and fell. Um, but that that's the... I guess the the nature of the hype and how quickly things can rise and fall is one thing that I've really been... I don't know... If it surprised me as much as I just never really thought about it, but um, but that has really struck me recently about the last uh, ten years of tech. Yeah, actually, I actually have a question here: is, is Google making us smarter or dumber? But <laughs> I actually you, you 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 mentioned the company and, and you and you talked about so the rise and falls and titans, and uh, a lot of people are talking about Twitter, mm-hmm. and it's it's been my favorite social media platform mm-hmm. um i spend most of my time on there personally um what's what's wrong with it <laughs> why <laughs> why why is it not going to be around soon <laughs> uh i uh, twitter is my social media platform of choice as well and i think i think the question is not what's the matter with twitter i think it's what's the matter with the tech economy that makes Twitter be a problem because there's nothing really wrong with Twitter, right? It's just, it's a great platform for people who are like news junkies and like that little rapid fire connection with people. Is it ever going to scale the way Facebook scales and be, you know, something that that many people all over the globe want to use and spend that much time in it and can get richer and richer with more media? Probably not. But does that that mean that there's something the matter with Twitter? Like, isn't Mm. Twitter something that actually does what it does very well? It makes money, A. B, lots of people like you and me really like using it. It's been used effectively as like a tool for social activism, right? There's lots of things to love about Twitter. Yeah. but I think it's a pro- to me the problem is about the way we think about what defines success in this world, and if Facebook is always going to be the benchmark of what defines success, yeah, I think that's or or indeed like the the nature of venture capital is that if if that's going to be if you're not making forty percent profit, yeah, yeah. So do you think so? Disney's out of the running. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about Salesforce. I did not heard that. Yeah. Well, they are. I don't. You know, the people on Twitter are talking. Right. About, they, <laughs> the Matthew Ingrams of the world, right, right. Are, are talking about Salesforce. But I'm, I, I, I don't know what to. Say. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. You know, now it's like you know the biggest thing would be you know you would get a verified account, you know, and me not being in media, you know, with big media, I'll you know mm-hmm. I'll never get a verified account. Um, and now with, I hope it doesn't go away. I I don't know. Like I I agree with you. Um, there was a book I'd read. Um, I think it was called Twitterverse. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember the author's name. Mm. Um, but he talked about it being a, um, not a social platform, but it, it was more than just, uh, you know, 
dollars and cents. It was more about you know how much money you could make. It was more it was more than you know could you get to a billion users like Facebook. It was right. it was the the ability for people to do important things, um, or <clears throat> or um, you know spark things that would become important. You know mm-hmm. whether it is hey we're going to have a march here or we're going to gather here or here's a photo yeah. uh, of something going on. You know, it's it's more. It provides that value and that currency, that social currency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's the important part mm-hmm. that it plays. But I'm concerned that if a VC or the investors or whoever decides to buy the platform doesn't see that as valuable, mm-hmm. uh, then will it be around anymore? And will we all go back? I don't know. What do you go back to using? You know, for... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing is like, what are all of these platforms um, really becoming media companies instead, right? If, if Twitter becomes something that's primarily about broadcasting sports on, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, that's okay. <laughs> but it doesn't, it seems to really overlook what is the huge democratic potential of a medium like that to do exactly what you're saying to yeah. like have us kind of you know potential groundswell of um, opinion and point of view on things and to do it in a way that's very public which seems to me to be the most exciting thing that Twitter offers yeah it's certainly what I value the most about it yeah w- why the name Nora 3000 <laughs> it started <laughs> it's funny it started before the era of like personal branding through, okay. you know, like it goes back to like when Clive Thompson was, you know, Pomeranian 99, right? Like people would have these funny handles. And yeah. I just thought of it as being like imagining it as a kind of like robotic alter ego type of uh, persona, the Nora 3000. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's not the. It's completely not a good brand I've, thing. I've at always all. wondered what that was about. Yeah, that's what it's about. Um, you haven't blogged since 2013. Yes. Why? Why is that? I think it's like what a lot of people feel like is it's just there's so much pressure to put stuff out on like different types of platforms that actually and probably like the short attention span thing that uh-huh. you're. I just find it's like the to put aside the focus and attention to actually do that seems mm-hmm. like a lot. Like there were first there were things like my book came out in 2012. So initially there there was a lot that was just like I was starting to do a lot more speaking engagements so the writing kind of shifted to that type of stuff. Okay. But um I don't know. It feels like a lot of work. Isn't that awful to say? <laughs> like, remember when writing a blog post was like, it's so liberating because you don't have to, like, you can just do it. It doesn't have to be any particular length. It can be, like, just your thoughts at the moment. It can be evolving. You can go back and, you know, do strike throughs and revisions. Yeah. Um, but now <laughs> it's terrible when I think about it. And you that. wanted to be oh a journalist God. growing up. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I had, was forced to, um, think that through actually because when i was talking to nick carr and he's really managed to keep doing it for a long time and i realized that so many of the people who are his interlock interlocutors and you know like the clay shirkies i think i looked up clay's blog and he hasn't blogged since like 20 
11 or something like that. Wow. Like, be a lot of people who are really active bloggers are not so so active anymore. And Neil Dash is still yeah still swinging. So do you do you use Medium at all? You know, besides consuming, I you... only consume on Medium. I do I do like it as a platform, but yeah. I, I have not written on Medium. Okay. Do you? I've never used it. Mm. I've never used it. I, I I've, and I don't know whether I want to or don't want to, but I don't know. I've I've never used it. Maybe one day. Who knows? Mm. Mm-hmm. I have no clue. I have no clue about these things. I, I just ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the good thing about being an interviewer. That's right? true. It's like normally I, I don't need to know the answers. Role. I just ask the questions. Yeah. Now you're on the other side that's of the right. table. Um, I know in one of your last shows you, you were talking about email. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've tried to use other, other platforms, you know, whether it's for work or, or whatnot. Um, but it seems to be the thing that it has to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Have you have you gotten away from using email? I noticed that I don't get nearly as much okay email. Like I, other than things that I've signed up for, like newsletters and stuff. Um, but I don't get as much work or personal email. So as is I your team to. on Slack or something like that? We have used Slack for a while. Um, we are using Trello for like Trello, yeah, keeping, yeah, yeah, as a pro- project, you know, keeping track of where everyone is with stories. Um, we use just the Gchat function for stuff that's more or less kind of ephemera that if it's just, you know, I want to ask you, hey, do you have a picture of that thing or whatever, sure. like that kind of interaction. Um I'm not sure I could go where our guest has gone with really, really wildly cutting back on email. I, st- I do still find I use it a fair bit at work. Yeah. At home, in personal life, it's sort of switched a lot more to, like, there's certain friends that I'm more DMing on Twitter with, and yeah. certain people that I'm um, just messaging back and forth with. That seems to have supplanted a lot of... Um, unless it's something more formal that still that you're planning or whatever, or like a group email where you need to send everybody information or yeah. something. But yeah, I get lot, lots less email than I used to. That's, that is so liberating. Oh, no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> it's like you go on, like I'll go on a holiday and I'll dread the email box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I find myself opening my phone just to delete a bunch of messages yeah. on holiday so that when I come back from holiday, there's less emails yeah. to go through, yeah. which is which is strange. Um, what what mes- messaging seems to be a huge thing. Everyone's talking about mm-hmm. messaging apps. Um, you, which which one do you use? I just uh, I just text. I don't because I'm not okay. generally I don't really have a reason to use like WhatsApp or okay. whatever. Um, I think the reason why people are talking about it so much seems to be partly because partly because of how it's evolved in certain international markets where it's used a lot for e-commerce. So the potential for something like that to actually make companies a lot of money, I think, is generating a fair bit of hype around it from a financial point of view. Um, but And also there just seems to be excitement in the potential for using chatbots in that because it's such an informal type of... Yeah. Um, environment that and that that the use of chatbots can be connected to e-commerce as well right like if you're saying you can just break off from your chat on whatsapp or whatever to say like to a chatbot hey can we get a pizza at this location or whatever yeah Um, that seems to be what some of the energy is that's driving it and just the sheer numbers of people when you look internationally at how many people are using these kinds of services that's a lot of users do you have any opinions on you know, whenever there's a quote-unquote new platform that comes out, 
it seems to be it seems to me that the conversation you know especially on you know you know places whether it be um you know on fortune magazine online or or TechCrunch um on how companies are going to use it mm-hmm. um and i always like i'm always thinking in my head and and although you know i work in in uh, um in advertising and media that you know i'm always thinking you know forget about how the companies are going to can we for once not worry how a company is going to use this yeah. to sell more of their stuff can we just figure out how to make this platform really cool that people are utilizing yeah. it and and gaining value out of it and and is it okay that that's all it can be yeah i do i mean it's a really good point actually and i do think if you start so early in the process that you're talking about business models and monetizing and how how scalable it is and all that kind of stuff, I do think there's part of that that is not only counter to the spirit of innovation, in some ways it's counter to the spirit of the internet. You know, like a while ago, yeah. I interviewed, oh, I cannot remember his name, I can visualize, Douglas Rushkoff. And he was talking about the early years of the internet and listing off all of the stuff that was invented, including email, in the era before it was commercialized. When people were really just like, when in fact, as he says, you had to actually sign an agreement that you weren't going to use the internet for commercial purposes, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And it was like a ton of stuff that we consider pretty foundational to the way we are online even today mm-hmm. and all done before the commercialization of the internet and yeah. i think it's easy to forget that that there's it's not the dollar that's driving absolutely everything and that in fact in the early years it was a lot of like you know the spirit of pure innovation the spirit of collaboration the spirit of um making something that was cool that other people could use that was informing yeah um, what we were doing i i ads online have like I get so upset with ads, mm-hmm. especially the ones that sort of pop out and jump at yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, I can't, you know, it's not, I could have an ad blocker. I'm allowed to have an ad blocker, mm-hmm. but I just don't because, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's because of the place where I work, you know, right. it's, I, I, I want to see the ads and learn and, and, and that sort of stuff. But I just get so upset when I'm reading an article um, and, and it's, it's coming to the line about what Donald Trump did or did not say, mm-hmm. and boom, a video pops up in front of yeah. me. Like, yeah. I don't want to watch that. I need to get to the punchline. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people are that way. I mean, I also feel like I'm maybe because I work in media and I understand the role of, you know, advertising and just paying people to write and make videos and stuff. But, um, I think a lot of people are willing to have, you know, a reasonable exchange. It's reasonable to have an exchange yes. of like a certain amount of advertising in exchange for the content that you want. Yeah. In the same way that we might flip through a paper magazine and be willing to flip through some pages of ads, and maybe they can even be entertaining. Mm-hmm. But then I agree. That's it. At that level where it's like you just took over my entire screen. Yeah. Like in the in the middle of my reading. Like that's crazy. Yeah. I'm a wasted impression for you. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because now I'm actively ticked off, and I'm not going to. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's there's this conversation happening here in Toronto about transportation. Mm-hmm. You know whether it is how do we make more bike lanes? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we uh, you know not have an hour commute when um, it should only take a half an hour? You know yeah. whether it's building subways in certain places. I'm curious if you've uh, come across discussions or people studying the role that technology can play 
in solving some of these issues? I know we have sort of like an open data Toronto mm-hmm. um, and, and people have created apps. So, you know, when the next bus is coming or the next subway is coming, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have things like ways that can help you get to your location faster rather than just going through a main street. Um, you know, but I'm curious if there's a role that technology can play in, in not just these in the moment to get to point A to point B faster, but more in making cities more livable, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly potential in terms of the smart city movement. Mm. If, if the city is <clears throat> networked to find out more information about um, how you might use the city in real time. Um, so, for example, there's a project in uh, Chicago called The Array of Things. I think it's okay. a co-production with um, the city and hmm, University of Chicago. Is that possible? Anyway, it's taking place in Chicago. And their idea is basically to build these kind of sensors at various parts all over the city. And what they're going to do is um, gather information about, like, for example where foot traffic is going and what water, what air quality is like in certain areas. And the notion here being that if we know that there are 20 people waiting for the light to change, why are we still prioritizing the one car, mm-hmm. right? If there's one person and 20 cars, it makes sense to prioritize things in a certain way. But if we have more data about, you know, who's using the streets and the balance of how they're using the streets in real time, maybe you can do things like change the way um, the traffic light systems work to be more responsive to to the actual patterns. And the interesting thing about this, because it returns to that idea of the politics and technology, is that um, one of the things that they've done from the very beginning, like baked into how they design the technology, is to make it available to um, researchers, to the city, to developers if they want to build tools off of it, and also to members of the general public. So they thought from the very beginning, how do we make this so that people's privacy is protected so Mm. that we can open up the data uh, right away from the beginning? And the notion being, so why shouldn't I, if I'm um, a cyclist with asthma, be able to use that kind of data um, to plan my route so I'm going through the place with the best air quality, for example. Um, But it takes that kind of thinking in advance of what would that look like to democratize the data and how do we protect people's privacy at the same time as we democratize the data. So that, I think, is a really has some really interesting um, potential is if you think about the city as a more um, almost like as a living organism and think about the the way the data can be used. But then, of course, there's also a lot of discussion around the smart city movement of like, okay, if we're just building these platforms, like who who does get the data? Is the data, does the data become proprietary by mm. whatever company is providing the technology that makes this work? So there's a lot of political questions, I think, at the heart of things like the smart city movement. That's very, very interesting. Have you ever been approached to go work at a startup or? I've had a couple of um, meetings with like design studios and yeah. things like that and i i have to say i think it's a it's a kind of thing that i have thought would be really interesting to do i mean there's always a bit of a grass is always greener yeah i was going to think if you've gotten the itch like you see all these opportunities and then you you sort of see the technologies and what people are doing all over the world and mm-hmm. i'm wondering if you've you know 
try to connect the dots and go, man, oh, we just need this one killer app, you know, or <laughs> this, you know, th- you know, th- this one thing or these few things that can make life just amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, l- 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 if you have any ideas let me for quit that, the, let me quit let the, me steal them from you. Let me quit my job again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I told people on my Facebook that I was going to be uh, chatting with you. Um, you know, and outside of people liking my comment and saying, oh, my God, I love her and all that stuff. I had a couple of questions that people sent. So I'm going to ask you this. Okay. Um, so this is sort of a not a big question, but sort of a broad question from Heidi. Mm-hmm. And Heidi, uh, so first she asks, you know, what does she think the next big thing is? And I said, well, the next big thing in what? So she said socks. But no, not <laughs> but not really in technology. Like, is, is there is there a next is there a next I don't know, Apple or Facebook or something that um, uh, uh, the next Pokemon Go. I don't know. Uh-huh. But is there something that, you know, pe- some people are using, but you think this is has whether it's value in terms of millions upon millions of people will use it or that here's something that can alleviate a situation. Mm-hmm. I would say on the socks front, <laughs> <laughs> my nephew gave me last year for Christmas um this thing called Sock Club, which is basically Sock of the Month Club. Okay, okay. And every month you get a new pair of socks that comes in the mail. And it's like, it's just like, <laughs> it's infrequent enough that you forget that you're going to get socks. And then you come home one day from work and it's like, I got new socks. Like, that's so awesome. Uh, that's my sock. Uh, so what's oriented. the Sock Club called, do you know? Is I think it called- it's just called Sock Club. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um Anyway, so socks. <laughs> uh, I do think, I mean, I don't have any specific, like, company that I think is big. I do think that you you were mentioning Pokemon Go. I do think there's a lot of room for augmented reality to actually um, grow and become, like, subtle and interesting and helpful and not so gimmicky. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, has real potential in making our experiences of the spaces around us um, richer without kind of getting without putting up barriers in between us um so that's something that i've been thinking a fair bit about um i do think that there's a lot of interesting energy and activity in the smart city space um, which is you know related obviously but Mm -hmm. i think that's an area where i certainly have uh, my eyes on it and especially i have my eyes on what artists bring to the table and the artists. way yeah and the way that we can use some of these technologies like augmented reality to make our cities places for connection and for beauty and for play um, mm. and not necessarily just uh, opportunities to suck data out of people um, sure. so that's something that I'm currently interested in looking I don't know if that answers Heidi's question but nice uh, my brother Anise has a question <laughs> And this is a long one. So I'm That's just nice that he's like follows the what you're doing on the podcast. Yeah, on Facebook. he's he's. I think he's he's the one guy that listens. <laughs> um, so he's so here's this question: the technology in the modern bicycle was mm-hmm. developed in the 1800s, and overall, it still retains elements very close to its original format. Using that as an example, what piece of current technology, which has reached its peak but will still be useful years or decades from now, is there a device, innovation, invention? which you've seen, which you're surprised wasn't successful. So one, is there something that is identical to what it is, what it was when it was created years ago that is still in use? And is there one that has gone by the wayside, which you're surprised at? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think you can see lots of examples of mature technologies that have got to a certain point and then not really radically changed. I mean, we tend to think of technologies as being, we call something a technology when it's new and it strikes us as being a technology, but, you know, like a book is a technology, right? A book is a technology for mm. reading. Um, and, you know, you people forget that we had these kinds of like paper books for a really long time before anybody thought of putting an index in the back of the book. And then it was a lot longer after that that people thought, hey, you know, it would be really a good idea is to number the pages and associate the things in the index with page numbers. Like that literally was an invention. That was the thing that made the technology better. Um, and then we've lived with this really quite sophisticated, elegant form of the paper book as a technology for a very long time since then. Um, what was the second half? What Something that Something that's gone by the wayside, which you're surprised at. Oh, um, besides Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. That's a, a, such a good question. I will think about it, and I'll leave an answer on your Facebook. All page. right, <laughs> sounds good. Please, please do that. Um, let's see. I've got a bunch of stuff I wanted to ask you. Um, you, you talked about in the virtual self of your book, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm sure on, on, on your shows, and, and we talked about it at the beginning, I, I can't remember, it was before or while we started recording about, you know, self-tracking, you know, how many mm-hmm. steps did you take, you know, and so we're tracking all of these things, whether it's things that will, in air quotes, make you healthier yeah. uh, or be healthy, uh, whether we're tracking our finances, um, you know, whether we're... Um, you know, whether it's apps that we think will make us smarter and, you know, all these things that we're tracking about ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm, is this helping? You know, are we becoming healthier? Are we becoming wealthier? Are we becoming smarter mm-hmm. as a result of all of these things? Well, I mean, on the fitness side, the jury is still out. There seem to have been, there have been a few studies that have come out lately that suggest, like, Nah, you know what? It's not really helping people that much. Partly because people tend not to actually um, use them for that long. They'll use them for a period of however many months and then stop using them. Um, There's some evidence that I've seen that um, people... Because the motivation piece is... um, Yeah. The technology is not the replacement for... um, the motivation piece, right? Totally There's a agree, researcher, yeah. um, I can't remember his first name, his second name is Patel, and he's done stuff about this that if you're already motivated, using a fitness tracker can help um, keep you on track, it can help you see trends, it can show you and oh, you know what, every time I go to visit my parents or something, I just basically sit around all day and I don't do anything, so I've got to compensate for that or that kind of thing. Um, but if you're not already motivated, it, it's not actually going to replace the motivation. Um, I think that you can, if you're using them kind of mindfully, I think what it can show you is that kind of insight. Mm. It can show you, like, what happens, what is happening, for example, in my week, that every week on Thursdays and Fridays I'm less active than I am in the rest of the week, and is there something I can do to help me, now that I notice that's a trend, to increase my motivation or my opportunities for exercise. So I do think that if you use them thoughtfully, um, they can be helpful. But I don't know. I I find that the sort of like, 
yay, you met my goal. Here's a little animation that comes up and there's a big heart and it bounces up and down. Like that'll last me for a while, but at a certain point, it's like, that's not motivating me any no. longer, right? Like I need something that's a little bit I totally, more I stand in front of the mirror and I go, I, I walked 10,000 steps today. Why right. do I look the same? <laughs> yeah, that's right. exactly, <laughs> I did this yeah. morning. Um, we, we talked about the Pokemon Go mm-hmm. phenomenon. Um is it how do you see it is is it a one off thing or or do you see um you know ar as 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 something bigger up to you know up up and coming yeah i mean i think pokemon go obviously benefited from a lot of things coming together at the same time this mm-hmm. sort of critical mass of people with smartphones this even the fact that it came out you know, when the weather is nice and people are more inclined to be outside anyway. Um, the fact that there's a large cohort of people who have fond memories of Pokemon. Um, yeah. It's bringing a bunch of stuff together in a really interesting uh, kind of way. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of potential in AR. I think that it probably actually needs to get a bit more subtle in certain ways. Like, okay. I mean, for example, what we saw with the Pokemon Go thing was a lot of people were getting irritated by certain aspects of it, right? You should not have a Pokemon Go thing at, you know, the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Like, you just shouldn't, right? You've got to figure out how you're going to compensate for that. You've got to figure out, like, what are the social norms that go around it? When is it obnoxious to be doing your whatever you're doing when you're playing Pokemon Go in a group of people, for example? Yeah. Um, But I think there, there are really good models from pre-augmented reality to suggest how we could actually use augmented reality in some really wonderful ways like if you know that um murmur project that started started a long time ago in toronto and now it's spread to other cities where basically you have your if you stop at a certain place in the city um there's like a little sign it's got an ear and you dial the number and it'll tell you a bit of social history yes, about the area. Yes, 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 yes. So that's like that's a pre-augmented reality technology and it's actually it's pretty low-fi in certain ways, but I think that's a really good example of how you can use you are augmenting reality in this case with audio information, but there's no reason why it couldn't be in a more conventional AR sure. type of format with information that actually really deepens your appreciation of the city around you and especially in a city like Toronto where people come from all over the place. You know, not many people were born here and there's always people who's have an interest in learning more about what, what happened in this place, for example. Um, So I think there's really is a potential for using it in some pretty intriguing ways, but I think we do have to figure out some of the social norms around it and how to tame the kind of obnoxious (laughs) factor of using it. Well, that was the thing with Google Glass, right? When people mm-hmm. were wearing them in places where you, you know, take that thing off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's take a, um, a a slight detour and and talk about media and, and I guess the future of media. You know, we, we've we had a bunch of layoffs at a bunch of, you know, newspapers, mm-hmm. legacy media, whether it's the Toronto Star or, or Rogers Cutting, their magazine publishing – um, you know, C- CBC, um, you know, has had brighter days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you, I want to ask you, how do you see media moving forward? Uh, but also I wanted to ask you about, did we, and when I say we, I mean society, did our demand for free 
um, and media's acquiescence to that. So not so before you you know you paid a quarter or fifty cents or a buck for a newspaper, but you could get the same stuff online for free. Did did letting that genie out of the out of the bottle out of the box did that ruin the future of media? Um, I don't think so. I mean, these are there's certainly difficult times. Um, I don't, I mean, I think as we were talking about earlier, there is advertising sometimes kind of obnoxious advertising. The problem is that it's not making people as much money as print advertising used to make. So we haven't really got the business model of how this is going to be funded. I think that people are certainly willing to pay small amounts pay a reasonable amount for certain types of content. I mean, Netflix is a really good example of sure, how yeah. you can build um, a business, not only just you know sending other people's content, but now making original content and mm-hmm. paying for it um, through like a really reasonable amount of money that a lot of people can afford. Um, I think the question might be, if you're really talking about doing like in-depth journalism yeah i mean that's costly right that costs a lot of money so you know people i think now are really still working on experimenting with different kinds of things do you have a public funding model for that do you have like gofundmes for for journalism if it's going to be that kind of in-depth operation um or do legacy media do they just really this seems to be something that a lot of places are doing which is to just really focus on how do we do a big project that can actually be something like a tentpole that can kind of stand out in this area where there's just so much media and you know you do see like that starting to be rewarded right facebook has sort of has said that they are going to start prioritizing um what appears to be quality um media that's coming through that it's going to be um prioritizing content that's a bit longer and a bit deeper and so forth. And I think that seems to be what everybody is looking for is how do we surface the really quality stuff. Um, But it's like, for sure, it's a very challenging time right now. And it's, I mean, this sounds a bit, um, I don't know, typical journalistic vanity, but I mean, it is, it does have a role to play in democracy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I think there's been some incredible work at bottom-up, you know, the bottom-up role that something like Twitter facilitates. I mean, something like Black Lives Matter is a really good example of that kind of thing happening and the documentation of um, behaviors being really, really important. But I still think there's a role for um, professional journalists or for people who can get paid full time to research things and to publish them and to to bring them to attention but it certainly is a difficult um it's a tough time right now for sure yeah did does does a platform or sorry does a a place or or a a company like a canada land Mm -hmm. for example and in other um outlets like that um is is there a role for, for for these players uh, in terms of investigative journalism? I think so. I mean, I think with Canada Land in particular, you know, I, I do think that Canadian media probably does tend to be a little bit too cozy, and I think there's certainly a role for someone who's going to be 
stirring the pot and <laughs> uncovering some, you know, uncomfortable truths and stuff like that. So, you know, I think there's absolutely a value for that kind of thing. In the more general sense, though, I think if you think about it as being these certain kinds of people who are, um, what do we want to call them, like mini majors, right? They're, they're not, they're like a step up from me doing my podcast with Kathy Bond, yeah. but they're not at the level of, you know... Um, they don't have a staff of dozens and dozens. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I mean, Candleland seems to be a pretty good example of how you can do that and and be effective if you pick your niche yeah. properly yeah. and you're doing something that mainstream media either um, isn't doing or won't do because it's uncomfortable for them to do it. Um, so I do. I, yeah, sure. I do think there's a role for that kind of thing. And I mean, you know, you have examples of Gimlet Media as that mm -hmm. sort of third stream, which is not mainstream media podcasting, but it's not the indies uh, either. Um, we'll see how they do. That's where Jonathan Goldstein has his... His new thing. I yeah. found that out through your tweets. Because <laughs> I... Lo oh, man, I loved him. Yeah. You Wiretap was a great Wiretap show. was a... I remember... I, I think I first got introduced to Late Night Driving, and it was one of his um, things where he's, he's having a phone conversation with someone. And I just loved it. It was so funny. It was so good. Yeah. And for a moment, I go, wait, is this real? Is this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was so good. And I used to, um, I think it would also come on like on Sunday nights sometimes maybe. Um, but I would, I would, you know, be working away on a Sunday night, getting mm -hmm. ready for the week and, and listen to that. Um, so when I saw your tweet about heavyweight, mm -hmm. um, I immediately downloaded it, uploaded the first three, first three episodes. Right. And it's so much like his old show. Oh, good. I haven't to actually me. listened oh, to it have, yet. Oh, no. it's so And his voice. His voice is like you. It's very memorable, mm. and you can get addicted to it. It's really, right. really good. So I'm, I'm happy that he's good. he's found a home. Um, but Gimlet, like, is, is that a Canadian outfit? Or? It's, uh, my understanding is it that it's um, people who used to be associated with NPR, with um, This okay. American Life, and I believe Planet Money. Okay. And they started initially by doing this... Um, show called uh, Startup, which was basically um, a podcast about starting being a, a, start, a startup podcast and starting this network. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that. Um, now, I think I read something about, I might be wrong, I think I read something about them being, um, having a little bit of financial trouble oh. uh, recently, but um, maybe that's a temporary glitch. So there's certainly an interesting model for trying to build a separate network. Yeah. Um, but there are all kinds of interesting other kinds of models in podcasting too. Like I just started listening to the podcast Still Processing. Okay. Which is um, Jenna Wortham and another reporter for the New York Times. And so they're both New York Times reporters and it's under the rubric of the New York Times. But they talk about things in a way that I don't think the New York Times would ever talk about things. Like it's very... It's kind of niche it's very personal, um, it's way less formal, and it's, like, really, really powerful. I've got a bunch of stuff, but I, I'm i just <laughs> looking behind me because I no know. There's no clock. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so there's somebody. So he's waiting. So so uh, I, I need to get you in again, but let me ask you this. Okay. Um, sort of my last, last question here. Um, okay, let me ask you this one here. Show me. Mm-hmm. Closing down, mm -hmm. um, is the simple answer they should have had original content, or you know why did why did Show Me not make it? And who knows if if I don't know what the other one is by Bell, 
Crave. I think. Crave. Um, I don't know if they're next up, but you know the future of Canadian media or Canadian entertainment media. So whether it is you know these magazines that um, are going to either be published monthly by Rogers or or you know going out of business or or Show Me closing mm-hmm. their doors. Um, you know I I know we talked a bit about um, Canadian media in general, but you know these attempts now to sort of break into new media. Yeah. So whether it's a show me or, 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 or whatnot, um, is Canada just too small? Um, is it hard being right beside the biggest media market in the world, you know, the United States? Um, or is there another reason why these big ventures aren't making it, but, you know, smaller ones, you know, whether a Gimlet or whatever, um, Canada land, you know, that they seem to have found a, you know, you call it a niche market. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, and I've thought about this with respect to Spark too, is that like in this kind of climate, whatever you do has got to be, in some ways it's got to be more specific and more niche right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for Spark, for instance, our competitors are not, um, you know, other technology shows in Canada. It's like the world of yeah. every... So what you do has to be more sort of specific and concrete. I think it's always going to be hard for something like a show me to come on the scene when there's already such a dominant player that has such a huge catalog. Um, so that's, that's a really tough order to fill. Mm. I think that... You know, you can look at some people who I think some um, organizations have made really smart decisions. Like I think the NFB made a really st- smart decision in putting tons of their content uh, online and accessible. Mm-hmm. It's a way to sort of stand out with their very unique, distinctive um, cultural product that they make. Um, the business of why Show Me didn't make it, I don't know, but it, that's <laughs> that is very tough. Being Canadian without being really. Distinctive, I think, is not going to play anymore. It's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not your mom's Canadian TV landscape. That's no, for sure. no, it's not. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure. It's been fun for for coming in. I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to continued episodes uh, of Spark. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>